In this episode of 92i Talks, Richard Gere and writer-director Joseph Cedar discuss their new film, Norman, The Moderate Rise and Tragic Fall of a New York Fixer, with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insdorf. The conversation was recorded on March 23, 2017, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Live. I am most pleased and honored to be here with Richard Gere and Joseph Cedar. I'm going to start off with a few questions for each of them. And before the evening is out, we will take questions from the audience as well. I have to say, to start things off, how not just impressed I was, but really touched by this particular movie. Um, I found Norman's cheerful desperation very moving. And I thought that there was even something of a tragic hero about him because of that, the hubris, the inability to see where his name dropping was going to lead him. And I wanted to know, first of all, from Richard Gere, how do you prepare to play this kind of ingratiating character? What kind of preparation did you do? I lived in New York since I was 20. <laughs> Could we, I, do you ever do this? Can we bring the house lights up so I can actually see faces out here? Because it's, a, okay. that's great. Thank you. Thank you. That's better. I like that so much better. Thank you. You know, it, it is kind of, you know, I'm being facetious, but it, it's actually true that, that you can't live in New York and not experience, even vicariously or unconsciously, whatever, the Jewish experience and picking up whatever that thing is. And, and I had to be more conscious of kind of dredging it up and bringing it to the surface in the process of, of creating this uh, extraordinary and completely original character that Joseph wrote. Um, Joseph was very kind and very um, dogged with me about kind of explaining the underpinnings of where this character historically came from in the Jewish experience. Um, but, you know, that's, that's only part of creating a character. There's, there's a universal guide to me. And certainly there's no one in this room that's secure enough that he doesn't question when he walks into a room whether or not everyone is going to be happy that he's there. Uh, <laughs> it, that, that sense of wanting to belong, wanting to be part of the cool kids, uh, Whatever that may be, whether you're in business or, or you're in the spiritual world or whatever you may be doing, the arts, um, I think there's always that sense of, of, am I in? Can I get in the door? Am I going to be ex embraced, not just accepted, but the word we were using today, essential. Can I, can I be essential to the world that I enter every day? And um, so that was really the thing that grounded me in this guy. And then, of course, through the New York experience and you know, the reality, the authenticity of that, uh, expressing it through the filter of that. Right. And for um, Joseph Cedar, the question is, I mean, there are a lot of great actors in New York, some of whom are very identified. Should I leave right now when no, you no, go no. into this? No, because the reason I'm asking the question is that I, I asked the same question. OK. OK? <laughs> When he gave me the script, I said, why me? Okay. And Same now, thing. There I are dozens of extraordinary, wonderful, perfect Jewish actors who 
who would love to play this part and do an amazing job with it. Well, actually, the reason I'm asking the question is because at this point, having seen the film twice, I cannot imagine any other actor being that normal. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thank but how, how you got from the script to the casting, that's what I want to know. So the, the short answer is that Richard agreed. <laughs> and, and that eliminated all the other considerations. Uh, a, a way to answer that question is to try to imagine any, any of the more stereotypical um, images of Norman and realizing how, how different the film would, would have seemed. Um, there's a combination of uh, an innocence and uh, naivety that Richard brings to Norman that was essential for this character to, to be likable. Now, I didn't, want a, I, I didn't want a Norman that is only innocent. Um, he, he takes his 7%, and he's, at least in some parts of the film, he's doing things that um, are unpleasant to most of the people around him. And that kind of character needed someone who is as charming as, as Richard, um, so that it will be believable and so that the film itself can, can uh, create a connection with an audience. So there, uh, I think what you're asking is, why, why didn't I cast someone who is stereotypically closer to, to the Actually, Jewish image? No, and that's not what I'm asking because for me, it's what led you specifically to this actor. What is it that you had seen in Richard Gere's work or maybe when you met him that led you to believe, because for me, it's not a question of stereotypical casting, but what led you to this particular, and in my opinion, spectacular actor? Okay, so the, 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 there's also a very uh, uh, accurate and short answer to that. It, it's, his name is Oren Moverman. Uh, he, he worked with Richard um, right before we started working on this film together. Oren is a friend, uh, a writer and director, and, and a producer on this film. Um, Richard and Oren made Time Out of Mind together. And I think, I don't, um, I don't know if you've seen this film, but um, there's, there's, uh, he plays a character named George, who's completely different than anything else I've seen Richard do. And, and of course, as soon as I saw that film, I knew that there, there's much more to this actor than just what we've seen so far. Well, that's a good answer. And by the way, Oren Moverman is a name you should all keep in mind. But he's also dismissing the whole previous career that I had <laughs> before Time Out of Mind, which was I was completely in the wilderness before that. Yeah, but actually, prior to Time Out of Mind, I'm going to defend Joseph on this. I think for many of us, you are associated with the charismatic movie star, with the attractive leading man that you have played in countless films. And it was a movie like Time Out of Mind where you're a homeless character in New York and it's a completely unvanity performance where you play against your natural charisma as you do in this film. And <clears throat> Oren Moverman had also made The Messenger and Rampart 
and soon May 5th has a new film coming out called The Dinner, starring none other than Richard Gere. And the fact that he's a producer on Norman as well means uh, this is a wonderful thing. Yeah, he's sitting right Actually, here somewhere. Actually, he's right Warren, here. Warren, where are you? Yeah, he's stand right here. Stand up. Yeah, Warren, sure, up. we like you. <laughs> the extraordinary, the lovely, the talented Warren Moverman. Okay, so now that we know you knew that this would be the right person, um, could you talk more about the creation physically of Norman? Because I can't help but notice how we never see Norman except when he's got layers on. I mean, true, there are one or two scenes where it's just a suit, but he seems to always be in that coat. He's in layers. The, yeah, the cap, he's layers the, the of, of armor, basically. And uh, he's a turtle. You know, he carries his house with him. He, these are some of the questions, of course, he asks. When you read a script like this, you say, well, where does he live? Does, does he have friends? Does he have a girlfriend? Does he have a boyfriend? What's the deal with this guy? And of course, you ask all those questions, and the first logical questions you ask. And, and with a character like this, there's no answer. And if there was an answer, it wouldn't help you, really, at, to, to enter his world. But it was important to ask those questions anyhow for me. Um, he, he's self-contained. Like an insect, you know, carrying around a, a, a shell, a dung beetle. It's kind of moving around. Mm. Um, it's all there. His communications, his wires, his things. It's in his bag, he's got all of his stuff. You know, he's got the layers so that, you know, if it gets warm, he can take one layer off and put it in his bag. And it, it's... Um, and he has seemingly no human connections other than his nephew, which is family. So he has family somewhere, and they, they have a recognizable relationship of family. Of that, that uncle that you're, you're kind of embarrassed by, you love him, but <laughs> you don't invite him to dinner when you have your friends there. Right. And, um, and Joseph, you didn't want to put any backstory into this film. I mean, there's an ambiguous line, he says to Alex, that he had uh, a wife who died and a daughter. But you scrupulously avoid giving us any sort of bedrock of reality. First of all, did you have any version of the script where there was more information? Or did you decide from the get-go that you just didn't want that kind of, shall we say, backstory to exist in the film? So there were versions, early versions of the script, um, where I investigated Norman's life um, and decided uh, what the audience would ultimately see. Um, I think what was interesting to me about um, his backstory was that Nor Norman lies in almost every scene of the film. <laughs> and he's, he's lying about his backstory. I mean, he believes it every time he tells it. Right. He does. And, he and, he knows, believes it. and he knows what the person he's speaking to needs to hear to feel comfortable with him. So he'll, he'll drop the fact that he was married or has a daughter or has a family or has a business or has a connection in the legitimate world whenever he feels that the person he's speaking to is, is pushing him away. Um, there, there are Normans around me who I would even consider friends who I think, you know, I, I don't know enough about them to, to be, to say that I know where they live or how they make a living. 
And because I've known them for so long, and because I know that it's likely that they're lying to me, I, I don't want to confront them <laughs> on it. Um, and the sentence in, in the film that Alex says, everyone knows who you are, but nobody knows anything about you, is true about many of the Normans that are in my head when, when I speak about Norman. Uh, and I, I thought that, that, should, that should be how the audience of this film knows Norman, with that question, if, um, if what he's saying is true or not, and understanding how hard it is to go through life never feeling comfortable to tell anyone the truth. Hmm. But the reality is no one really asks him. They're afraid to ask him. They're afraid to ask. They're afraid of the answer. He gives enough that, okay, I, I get it. Just enough to put him in a human frame, to normalize him in some way. But no one ever says, tell me what's going on with you. Tell me about your mother. Tell me. Well, Alex tries. But as, as soon as she understands that everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie, she steps back because it's, it's awkward. And she realizes that there must be a reason why you're lying. Hmm. Now, did you, Richard, at any point feel that you needed to create more of a backstory for the history of Norman before we meet him in the film, or did you not go there? No, as I said, I mean, you, you naturally do that. It's a good beginning point with any character. But it became clear to me that I would have to jump into him intuitively and just know him. And uh, I felt that I could. Um, I felt the same on, on Time Out of Mind. That it was, the backstory wasn't that important. It was less. It almost diminished him having a backstory. Hmm. It, it was more important to, to dive into the reality of him as a mysterious human being than to know the particulars, which, which has to diminish all of us. The, the, the seeming fact of us is, is so much smaller than who we are. Do you feel that the essence of Norman is more in his loneliness or bravado or his fear of being insignificant? In other words, was there something that you could move through the film with or is it a combination or something else? Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of obvious things of how he behaves, but it was something that I kept probing him about in, in those months before we started shooting. I said, He's continually humiliated, and doors are slammed, literally slammed in his face. And it was important for me to know how he would recover from those. And what is the residue? Most of us, when we get hurt, the hurt literally hurts too much, so we turn it into anger. Anger we can live with. We all do that. I do that. And, and, but this is not a character who goes there. He stops it right at the point of the pain and transforms it. It's, it's a really peculiar thing. Now, he's edited the movie, some of these scenes where you can see the transition. You can see him be slapped, recover, and find a new way to move on. But some of it is so quick and so instinctive inside that you'd have to look frame by frame to see how, how he's done it. And that, to me, was, was an essential key to me of who this man was. He, he doesn't go to anger. He's frustrated. But it, it's not anger like we normally think of anger or revenge. There's no Iago in him. There's no darkness of, of ever wanting to hurt anyone. I think it would be unthinkable that he would ever think something he's, he's done, a lie, would hurt anyone. 
I think he, he always, the lie is always going to lead to something good. It's going to be, it's going to work out for everyone. And as you see, I mean, ultimately he finds a way that, that everyone gets what they want. Right, only at the price of the peanut-induced suicide. But Which may that. be ultimately even what he wants, a, right. a transcendence, you know, a, a moment of, of, of grace uh, in, a, in a really kind of grand operatic way that maybe that's, that was it. I'm essential now. Right. I'm essential to the universe in this moment. And, and it's specifically, I think, because the end of the film is cross-cut with the synagogue service, which we slowly realize is Norman's funeral. And to end with the sign anonymous seems so perfect. Um, and it, it, it's also because throughout the film, despite what are still your incredibly good looks, I think we can acknowledge that, you manage... Even with the years. <laughs> Even with the years, come you... on. <laughs> But you manage to look totally anonymous in the city of New York, in those streets. You know, people won't, wouldn't stop twice to look at you, and it's not easy to be um, an, anonymous in that way. At the end of the film, one gets the feeling that Norman's character finally will have that buoyant respect that he's so desired in life at the moment of death. And you, you chose an upbeat music for the end credits, you know, and I'm... Was that something that you wanted to get the feel of? Yes. <laughs> the, the, the music is a combination of, uh, it has a circus quality to it, um, a klezmer feel, and it's composed by a Japanese uh, composer who, who somehow connected uh, to the soul of Norman, uh, culturally as distant as you can imagine. But, um, but so close on a personal level. He, he found a rhythm and a sound and a flavor that, um, in my mind, keeps Norman alive even after the final shot of the film. Absolutely. Now, this to me is one of the most quintessentially New York City movies that I've seen in a long time. You can tell that you didn't go to Vancouver, Toronto, or anywhere else. <laughs> And I recognize so many uh, street corners, 57th and 7th. I don't live far away. Um, first of all, could you talk a little for both of you what it was like to be shooting so many scenes in the streets, in Starbucks, in Staples, which seemed to function as Norman's home? We never see him inside an well, apartment. That, that's my office. That's your office. I have exactly. my offices in special places around the city. And but you, even logistically, you know, what was it like for you to be shooting that much in New York and for you to, to actually be doing so much of it in the streets and among the, the population? So there, there's a technique of, of shooting in New York that I, of course, had no experience with. But the, the people who, who made the film with me um, live this industry and they have this great faith in New Yorkers not caring about... <laughs> This, this, this crane and lights and, and, and movie star um, among them. And I, I didn't believe it until I saw it, but we, we found ourselves shooting take after take after take with no one looking into our lens <laughs> or no one looking back at, at anything that was going on. And once you realize that it works, you, you, you count on it and you slowly, you know, you expand the shot. And, 
and it's it's I think it's a it's a great thing. This I mean to be honest, it's something that that we discovered when we were doing Time Out of Mind, which we we had no money, and I'm in the streets, and we couldn't control the streets. We didn't have the money to. We couldn't have extras. We didn't, and it was using long lenses. As long as I was in character, we shot the entire movie on the streets of New York, and no one paid any attention. So I think it was the, it, it was the experience of that that we came up with on that film that I think also informed your confidence of how we could do that in New York City, which we did, again, a lot of long lenses, but some of it wasn't. Some of it was steady cam shots of me walking down the street, steady cam moving around me, handheld shots. In, in Time Out of Mind, we hid the whole mechanism, the footprint of movie making, but this, there's a lot of it, it wasn't. Very, very rarely were there extras in those shots. This was really New York, right? And curiously, though, now that I think of it, here I'm saying quintessentially New York, I believe so much in the authenticity of place, the rhythm of the streets, but your casting, I made a curious mistake when I introduced the film. I used the word local talent because I was thinking of Steve Buscemi, but you went and cast Michael Sheen, the British actor, as the uncle. Dan Irish. Uh, I'm sorry, Irish. Um, I'm interested in the casting of the other roles around Richard. Just, you know, how did you conceive of that? Did you want a little bit of tension between the expectation of the New Yorkers and what you were offering? So the, the, the truth is you, you want to work with great actors, actors who, who take the script, take the scene that you wrote and make it 20 times better than what you could have imagined while you were writing it. Um, that's the only test that I you know, put a, a casting choice to. And if you look at all the people that surround Norman, I think it's true about all of them. All of them are, are fantastic actors who embody a character in a way that is, is, is complete and fascinating and thrilling, even when the situation isn't all that. Um, I, so all the actors you mentioned um, gave this film another layer that didn't exist before they were in those characters. I completely agree with you, but not every director would have thought to cast the actor who played Tony Blair more than once as the <laughs> New York Jewish uncle, so more power to you. And Hank Azaria, I've, I've been a fan of his work for many, many years, playing Shmuel, um, and I wanted Shrule. to... Shrule. 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 I'm sorry. Shrule. Um, Shrule cats. Are we... I, I'm curious about this, and forgive my ignorance. Are we to assume that he is a younger version younger? of Younger? He was younger than me. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let's say he's uh, not yet evolved to the level that Norman has in the film. We were talking about it today. When that was in the script, and I, I'm reading the script, I'm like, do you really need this character? Well, do you really need this character? Of course, when you see the movie, you get it. But, but, you know, I was wondering, is he just a guy who's trying to be like Norman but better, or is he working for the Israeli consulate? Because at, at a certain point, when he brought him to the consulate, I had the feeling, no, 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 there's a little more there than I would have assumed. I, you don't have to say that it's one or the other, but I'm curious if you had it in mind. I, I don't think I can answer that question. Okay. The, the closest I can come to speaking about Cyril Katz is that whenever I see another director do a Q&A, um, I get a glimpse of, of 
of how I appear to be or how I'm conceived by others. And it, 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 it always uh, makes me stop for a second and, and, and wonder about um, what, it, what it is that I'm doing that um, other people see and I will never be aware of. Yeah. That's, that's the function of Sorrel Cats in this film. Okay. And, and by the way, I really appreciate that answer because I don't know if any of my Columbia University students are here, but in so many of my classes, what I stress is that the great directors have just a little bit of purposeful ambiguity so that something they put in the film is not meant to be, oh yeah, it's this or it's that. It's meant to be evocative, to pose questions that are not necessarily answered within the film, but within how we think about and feel the film afterwards. And they're like, you know, grace notes in music. They're not the melody. There's something a little beyond that stays with you and makes you think about the film long after it's over. Um, logistically, one other question just about shooting in Staples and Starbucks and whatever. How, was it easy or difficult, especially compared to the shoots you've done in Israel, to get all the locations that you wanted? Um, for the right price. Okay. <laughs> it's it, uh, New York. Uh, I had to sign a lot of autographs, meet a lot of wives. <laughs> That's the price that was right. Okay. Um, and <laughs> uh, one other question before I, I wanted to ask more about Richard's preparation. But you use in the film the actual names of Joe Wilf and Arthur Taub, which I couldn't help but feel are variations on the names of real philanthropists like Joseph Wilf and Tad Tauba. Um, how much was intentional and... So, there are hundreds of names in the movie. Okay. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know where these names came from. What, before you make a movie in the United States, this isn't true in Israel, you have to clear the names legally. And the, the rule is, if there are enough names, then it's okay. But if there are, I don't remember the exact number, but, but if there are only three or four people with that name, you can't use the name. So, for instance, Srul Katz was Srulli Katz, but there were, there were three Surly Katz is um, listed somewhere. So the legal department came back and said, you have to change the name, so I changed it to Surl. All the other names just ringed right. Um, and some of these people are real, but I, I wasn't aware that I was using real names. I, what, the, the years while I was writing this film, I, my, the fam my family and I were here in New York, and I'd, I'd sample different synagogues in New York. Every synagogue has a wall. Um, a memorial wall, and that's that's what I would do during services. Uh, <laughs> look, look look for names that sa that sound so sound right for this film. <laughs> so that that's where. So if there, if there's a Joe Wilf somewhere, uh, I would look for him on a on a wall in one of the synagogues in this neighborhood. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, okay, I'm going to move now back to um, something that you said, Richard, because I'm actually now rethinking the film based on your mentioning that anger is not in the emotional vocabulary of Norman, that he seems to somehow be more resilient than we might think the turtle. 
I'm noticing in quite a few of your films something that Roger Ebert pointed out in his review of a movie called The Double, which you made in 2011. There's something about a momentary hesitation where you can almost feel the character thinking or pulling back. I mean, I'll, I'll quote it. Roger Ebert was one of my favorite critics. And for the film where you play a retired CIA agent, he wrote about you, he's an actor who has only improved with age. I like the subtle cat-like body language he uses. He never just flat does something. It's a form of dancing. He's permanently on poise. Hmm. Now, since you studied music as a trumpeter, you even played with the uh, Syracuse Symphony in your teens. I'm curious, how important is music in your creation of a character, even though there's nothing explicitly in the film about this? Um, I get that feeling that somehow, even in your body movements, there is a kind of rhythm that allows you to express something closer to hesitation or doubt or regret and not some easy emotion. I, I, is that completely off or? No, I think there's a, a rhythm. I think movies have a rhythm. I think scenes have a rhythm. I think internally in scenes there's a rhythm. Our breathing has a rhythm. Uh, the surface thoughts that we have and emotions have a certain rhythm to them. And the, the game that we play is Although this, this, a lot of this looked like it was improvised, it's probably 99.9% .9 written. Brilliant script. Our job is to make it feel like it was an improvisation, it was a jazz improvisation. And that I say something in a certain way which makes the saxophone, the actor I'm playing with, do something in a certain way. And the piano comes in and does something else, and, and, but it's moving. We know the vague shape, we know, we know the melody line and the chord changes and, and the colors of what we're playing with, but it has, it has to move, it has to have a rhythm. What's fun when you have great actors is that if you do something slightly different for whatever reason, it changes everything else. And sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but it's always different when you're playing with really talented people and you have good language to begin with, a good situation. Um, there was a, there's always a, something that I quoted that uh, Miles Davis said, and I think it's true, maybe of all art, certainly of music, maybe, maybe of acting too, is that, that he says, look, I, I play the notes that aren't there. That's, I think that's what we're all trying to do kind of in life, you play the notes that aren't there. And, um, and it's probably the performances you don't like where, they play the notes that are there. It's kind of dead. So, but you can't play anything unless you have a framework. And especially with other people, you have to have the melody line and the chord changes. And then you can play the notes that aren't there. And does that come about in a film like this more from rehearsal or from the immediacy of shooting in the location? I mean, for my sake, you can answer it, but just since I'm in the frame of this, it's, it's from comfort level. The whole thing for me is based on comfort level. If, if you're not playing with professionals, you shouldn't be in this game anyhow. It's too hard. But the comfort level opens up the, the space for something special to happen.
And if I didn't trust him and feel comfortable with him and with the other actors, and even with the DP, and feel like, okay, we're on the same wavelength there. They got my back. You know, if I fall down, they're going to pick me up, and I'll do the same for them. It, with that, within the trust of that comfort level, extraordinary things can happen that surprise us all the time. This, uh, I, I'm, I'm, whenever I, I'm, I'm on a set, um, I'm en I feel envy towards the actors. Um, they get to do something that most people are afraid to do. Um, and I'm definitely afraid to, to be so close to, um, to being ridiculous. Hmm. Now, the, I, the, I say ridiculous because no, nobody wants to be ridiculous. But anything interesting has to risk that. Um, and I, I think that there's something about Norman that is constantly on the verge of, of being really ridiculous. And for, for being behind the camera, seeing Richard um, willing to get so close to that creates the opposite of ridiculous. It, beco it becomes divine. Uh, it beco it, just the willingness to go that far. Um, once I knew that Richard um, can take Norman uh, to places that I, I never imagined he would, uh, the, the whole environment in the set was at once uh, risky because he was taking risks, but exciting because everything that happened um, had that risk. Was was there was no safety net, um, and I you know I I, I appreciate Richard is calling this a, a, a comfort level, um, and it apparently there's an environment that allowed him to to do that, yes. uh, but I, I think it's also a decision to 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 let go. And, and to make sure it's comfortable. And I, I really appreciate the, that. I think, I think the movie wouldn't have um, the tension it does without the audience realizing that Norman can do anything. Hmm. Well, and you made a very interesting decision that I was aware of watching the film tonight a second time. I realized that when we have the scene of Eschel in part two, act two, who is now the prime minister, and Norman gets on that line, okay, I think we felt the whole audience, the, the, the sigh of relief when Eschel actually embraced him. And suddenly, Norman was no longer a pathetic macher loser. He was, in fact, elevated. But then you do something very Every interesting. Every time I see Richard, I go through that experience. <laughs> it's true. Every day I would show, when, even in the very beginning when we, when we met, and I would show up, he'd look at me like, you showed up. And You're here. And when he recognizes me, it's, it's always this, this great miracle. <laughs> Meet Norman, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, but but you do dangle this uh, image before the audience when suddenly the entire frame freezes. And you see slow motion in the background. And I, for one, suddenly realized, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't happening, quote, in reality, but only in Norman's imagination. And I became suddenly, I realized, so protective of Norman. He, he had become oh, real for me. And it wasn't until Alex says in the train that she saw him embraced by the, that I went, Phew. 
And, I, and then I thought, boy, have I been hoodwinked by the film. Norman exists for me in such a palpably real way that even though I might be a little condescending about him, I care for him to transcend. Well, it's interesting that you would even consider the possibility that, that he's really out there. And that, that's, <laughs> I hadn't even considered that myself, that he's, he's loopy. He's really <laughs> well, because you end the scene with him closing the um, thing in which he carries his business cards, which is where that particular moment opened. So one could take yeah. it either way yeah. for at least a couple of minutes. That's what you were intending? or there, When you're close to someone who is a pathological liar, um, nothing is certain, ever. Uh, not for the people who are listening to him and probably not for the person who's lying. Um, so I, 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 part of this film is, has a subjective filter. Um, through, through Norman's eyes, we experience certain parts of, of, of this story. You know, there's only, I'm just thinking of the, maybe the only part that that's not true is when we're in the train station and she calls me. And it's her point of view observing me. That's true. It's, it's yeah, it, it, it's, Alex uh, is, a, is the only person in the film who, um, who Norman realizes is, is aware of his bluff. Uh, and it immediately creates an intimacy that he doesn't have with anyone else in the movie. That's right, and there's that strange moment when he knows that she knows that the sounds of the background of the train station are being heard on both phones. And yeah. that's like one of the few moments in the film where there's a, a verifiable reality that can be yeah. corroborated by him and another character. Um, we are gonna take a few questions from the audience, but I do wanna ask you, Richard, one question. We bump into each other every now and then at not just film events, but um, when the Dalai Lama speaks and things that have to do with uh, Buddhism because I, among other things, am, am deeply drawn to some of the beauty that I have found. As a practicing Buddhist, um, I was wondering, do you see Norman as being on some kind of opposite end of the spectrum of what I think all good Jews and good Buddhists and human beings aim for, a certain kind of enlightenment, or do you see him within the frame. I guess what I'm really asking is, is there a continuity between your spiritual beliefs and the way you approach a character like this? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 look, it's the... There's no way what prof one profoundly believes doesn't get into everything one does. I can't say there's a radical difference in my approach to work or the choices that I make. I don't think that's true. But I know there, I mean, Oren knows this because we, we spoke about it. When I, when after I saw the first cut of, of um, Time Out of Mind, and I, it was the first time I realized I was telling the story of a monk. This guy wasn't just a homeless guy, he was a monk. Were, he was a very specific, when, when he was on a street corner, he was just on the street corner. There was no judgment from his side. And I, it's not like I was thinking about this or why I was obsessed for 12 years to tell this story. It was after I saw the movie 
that I realized what I was doing and the choices that we both had made. It was, it was telling the story of a, of a homeless monk, really was what it was. And then there's, there's something in what we did. I mean, he always laughs at me a bit when I say this, but there is something of the holy idiot about Norman. And I think it's part of this thing that there's not a vicious bone in his body. This is, he's, he's, a, he's essentially a cuddly, kind, generous human being who wants his 7%. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's a monk. <laughs> I mean, not, not Norman, Nor Norman. <laughs> No, he's, um, I, I sometimes think of Norman because I love the movie The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. And I, I started thinking, Mark and I talked about this afterwards, what if Richard Dreyfuss's character in The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz had moved to Manhattan and then not made it? Would he yeah. have become Norman? But there is an inherent difference, I think, in the, the very nature of the way Richard Gere incarnates a character and the way Richard Dreyfuss incarnated that one. But I assume you're familiar with that movie. There, there's, yes, I, I think they're, they're related. I think yeah. they are uh, Duddy and Norman are, are they, have the sa they have the same, the same itch. Okay, yeah, that they, they, they want more than they can handle. Okay. Now, I have many more questions, but I suspect that some of you do as well. So we're going to start with the woman there, and I will repeat the question as I hear it. Go ahead. Close the doors. <laughs> no one leaves the room. Is there a moral to this story? Okay, essentially, Norman does good deeds. Can one say that there is a moral to the story? I, if I can get through this whole, this whole uh, publicity tour without ever answering that question, that would be my success. <laughs> well, maybe um, another way to ask that question I read an interview that you gave in Israel where you talked about this film as a kind of love affair between American Jewry and Israeli Jewry. And I'm not saying that there's necessarily a message here, but there's a different way of thinking about the relationships in the film. Maybe you could elaborate on that? First, um, it's surprising me that uh, interviews that I do in Israel somehow cross the ocean. Um, I hope I didn't say anything that offended anyone uh, no, on, this, mean, on this side, because I definitely did on the Israeli side. Um, there's a love affair between Norman and Eshel. Um, it's one-sided um, for most of the story. And I, I think that, I mean, that's extremely sad for me. Um, and I, if it says anything about the, who Norman represents or who Eshel represents, that, that's okay. But as far as our work goes, it's between Norman and Eshel, mm -hmm. an, an American Jewish businessman and an, an Israeli politician, both handsome men. 
Right. But clearly, when Eschel at the end throws his personal cell phone into the pond, you know, we know uh, where the power lies and who will be dismissed and buried and, yeah, drowned. Um, there was a hand right here. Yes? Welcome back to the 92Y Theater. We've missed you and look forward oh. to seeing you again. Joseph. Is there anyone recently that helped you embody Norman's pathological lying? Anyone around you? Can I, can I say that the movie has become more timely? <laughs> since we made it? Well, this goes back to Sruly Katz, Hank Azaria's character, that he has the business card, which is identical, Katz strategies, to the one that Oppenheimer strategies was visible before. Can you elaborate on that at so all? So the, the other day, I, I was doing an interview um, for a, a Jewish TV outlet, and I was asked that question about uh, who is Sruly Katz, what is Katz strategies, how does it relate to Oppenheimer strategies, and I, I was trying to avoid the question. And, when the interview was over, this, the person who was interviewing me came up to me and took out a, a, a case with business cards <laughs> and offered his card to me and said, listen, if there's anything you ever need, <laughs> uh, please feel free to call me. It would be my honor to... <laughs> and I... <laughs> so there... there um, I think they're, they're, everyone knows a Norman, and for every Norman, there's a Sorrel Katz. Can I ask that question, by the way? Who knows a Norman out there? Can you raise your hand? <laughs> Come I'm on, gonna, don't I'm lie. Gonna, don't lie. I'm going to rephrase the question. Who has a Norman inside of them? And that's where my hand goes way up. Yeah. I mean, because look, one of the things the film, I think, presents is that if you're living in New York City, as opposed to some rural or suburban area, your life is a function of this interconnected world where your value is never a question of, give me this, this is mine, thank you. It's always a question of what you do in a network, how you connect others, mm -hmm. whether it's a teacher doing it for her students, whether it's a director working with actors, whether it's the multifarious network of New York City life. I mean, I identify with a little piece of Norman. Obviously, I don't want to identify with too much of Norman. But so much of us is about wanting to feel valued, not wanting to be insignificant, to feel the essentialness. And we need to see that reflected in the eyes of others. It's a very basic thing that I believe most of us have. In some, we're lucky enough to receive it from those we love, 
from our daily lives, but there are many people who don't have that. And it can become, shall we say, a bit thwarted and perverted, you know. Would, would that be within your realm of what you were presenting? I think so. I, look, I, I, um, I, I love Norman. Um, I do. Uh, and I, I feel that he has a bad reputation. <laughs> and and if, if this film can somehow, I don't, think it, it, I don't think it fixes his reputation, but he, he allows an audience to see the world through his eyes. And that's a correction that I, I, I feel obligated to do. Um, what, what Richard was describing, someone who can't afford to, to ever be angry at anyone, even though he's constantly um, wronged, that's, that's, that's something that um, I'm, I'm happy is on the screen. Uh, okay. So, and by the way, it would have been a very different movie if, for example, Norman had shown up at the home at the beginning of Taub, taken his seat at the table, and happily eats and talks to people as if, you know, he wants... No, he doesn't get any personal immediate benefit from any of these encounters. It's fascinating to me that all he ever, wa ever wants is to be able to pass, to what's the, pay it forward, to be able to somehow get the next person to benefit, and that's how he has his sense of identity. Yeah, he would never want to be the center of attention. He's not that, that person, no. Well, that makes him more heroic for me. Uh, we have one question there and then one here. Did you ever consider shooting this film in black and white? Because it seemed to me that the focus on the characters would have been very specific. You didn't need the, the background, the world, the coloration of the world didn't have to intervene. Given how specific the focus was on the individual characters as opposed to needing a colorful background to intervene. So, no, I, 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 didn't, I didn't ever consider this film to be black and white, but there is, um, there is a silent uh, era um, genre of films that echoes in, uh, in my head and is relevant to this film. Uh, between 1902 and 1907, uh, there's a series of films uh, under the, the strange uh, category of uh, a genre called the scheming merchant genre um, about a character named Cohen. Um, these films were directed by a director named Edwin, Edwin Porter. Oh. Uh, each, each film uh, has this character, Cohen, who's a grotesque Jewish stereotype. It usually takes place um, uh, near a storefront or, or a, a shop window. And each one of these films has the same structure. Uh, it's, it's about this merchant trying to cheat someone and ultimately becoming a victim of his own scheme. Uh, and I, 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 I fell in love with, with, that, with that idea. Uh, it, he's, not, he's not an innocent, um, altruistic character. He's someone who's trying to get something he probably doesn't deserve. But then he becomes a victim of, that own, of, of, his, own, of his own desire or his own trick. Um, that combination is, is, seems to be exactly what uh, I'm attracted to. Mm -hmm. So it, not black and white, but uh, there's a silent echo that I think exists in the story. Thanks. Yes, right here. Yeah. <laughs> 
Speaking of business cards, I'm an actor. Can I hand you my card at the end of the screening? <laughs> to me? Yes, of course. Of course. <laughs> I would be proud to receive that card. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it for you when we go backstage. A gentleman here, and then there's a woman right there, and then I'll come back here. There's a question about the split screen at the final phone call between Eschel and Norman, as opposed to, for example, the scene with Alex where they're superimposed, you know they're in the same space, but this is where they're the most honest, Norman and Eschel. At what point in the process did you... Yeah. The, so much of Norman's life is, uh, happens on the phone, and so much of his ability to um, get his way into pe people's worlds without them actually inviting him has, has to do with this tool called the phone. Um, we, we, we worked hard on finding an aesthetic way to, to treat these phone calls. It's, um, there's something about um, seeing just one side of a phone conversation is, um, is mysterious, but it's not dramatic. Uh, and we, uh, while we were planning this film, I kept on trying to, to understand what I go through when I'm on the phone. And there, there are two observations that um, we came up with. One is that when I'm in a phone conversation, I don't really see the world around me. So there's some, there's some shield that, that um, covers me while I'm on the phone. Some, something about the conversation blocks everything around me. So that was important for, for Norman to work with. The other thing is that the picture I have in my head of the other side of the line usually has to do with the image I have of that per person from the last time I met him, and not where he is right now. Um, and that, that felt like an, especially between Eschel and Norman, that felt like an interesting uh, visual idea. So I think the, the images of at least Eschel, or Eschel's entourage, are what Norman imagines uh, the prime minister is doing right now, and not the actual, or how he imagines Israel, which is this uh, combination of a utopian yeah. um, agricultural paradise and a, and a Roman, uh, and su some kind of Roman um, uh, uh, yard. Okay. Uh, this will be the last question, I'm afraid. Go ahead. Yes, the woman who... I'm sorry, a little louder. I'm sorry, I, I didn't get the last part of what you said. You said uh, that we get the feeling throughout that Norman wants to be loved. He's not crazy. Uh, he's not loose, he's not crazy. He has to lie. He really wants to be needed. And I kept thinking through all of this year's phenomenal role. I kept thinking back to Haji. To Haji. Haji. Oh, Hachiko. Yeah, yeah.
Okay, this is referring to a film, Haji, the, with it's the, the dog. dog movie, yeah. Okay. Is there a continuity between Norman and that character? For you, there is, honey. <laughs> <laughs> But I think ultimately, maybe what these questions are revolving around, there, you have played so many different roles over four decades. Um, but there's obviously, increasingly, I think, a desire for reinvention as opposed to accolades. I mean, you keep taking different kinds of roles, risks, but there's always some kind of human core. I mean, there's always something about the films that you've done that make me question what it means to be alive at a given moment. What does it mean to have relationships, whether it's with an animal or with the ghosts of people that you want to be with? In other words, when you don't have something, as with Norman. And um, I, I just find that it's, it's a, a wonderful thing when an actor like you can keep surprising us in a variety of roles that always point us to ask deeper human questions. And I must say that for Joseph Cedar, we haven't had time to really talk about your other work. I had prepared all these questions about Footnote and Beaufort, and, and um, I, I, you've got such an interesting... No, I have career. nothing else to do, so if you want to stick around... But I, I did promise that we would end the evening at this point. So uh, April 14th, Sony Classics is releasing this in theaters. Please tell others if you feel that this should be seen as I do. And I want to express my gratitude to Joseph Cedar for coming for the first time and for the third time. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.